out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the bass player and songwriter and much more. It's the one and only Greg Norton, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. One-time member of Huskadu and is currently in a new band called Ultra Bomb, who have got a tour coming out uh, or coming around the USA in May 2023. Um, And they also have a new live album, which is titled Time to Burn, which is available from all good record shops and also online. Do check it out. It's absolutely stunning. But anyway, this is the interview with Greg. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. This is after I mentioned that uh, my first single and first love was David Bowie with Space Oddity. Anyway, Greg, it's over to you. Uh, you know, it's funny that you men- mentioned uh, Space Oddity. Uh, back in the in the 60s, it wasn't unusual for uh, 45 records to be included as a promo in various products. And uh, uh, my mom bought a box of crisps. And inside that box was the David Bowie Space Oddity, like 45. <laughs> which was kind of funny that you mentioned that. So that's like one of the first records that I ever actually owned um, because of course I, I grabbed it and kept it, but uh, yeah, no, I, I had a very varied uh, upbringing in music. Uh, my, my dad loved big band jazz, Stan Kenton in particular. Uh, he really loved Tony Bennett, uh, the singer and uh uh, I've got two older siblings. Uh, my sister was, you know, listening to the Beatles uh, as all that stuff was coming out. And and then my brother was like, you know, listening to, you know, Hendrix and Zeppelin as all that stuff was coming out. So, um, you know, definitely listened to music my entire life growing mm-hmm. up. And then yes. uh, when I was 14 years old, I uh, lied about my age and got a job downtown uh, uh, St. Paul and uh, started working as an usher in a movie theater. And right next door was a record store. So I would always just hang out at the record store. And um, really, you know, this is like probably 1973. And, uh, you know, 72 and 73, there were so many incredible records that got released. Uh, Being turned on to all of that as it's coming out, uh, and plus the the two clerks who worked there all the time, they were uh, into jazz. So not only was I being introduced to all the all of this great new rock and roll that was coming out, but I was also being exposed to uh, John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Ornette Coleman and and all these other jazz greats. Uh, and also at the time, then I discovered on my own, independently of that, because they had a section in, in the store, but. Um, you know, electronic music, you know, so Morton Sabotnik and, and, um, uh, Wendy Carlos and, and things like that. So, um, yes. I, I, I just really kind of dove in and, and, um, which probably explains why, 
I'm kind of a musical freak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because my parents, I suppose at that age or that time in their life, they got married in the late 50s. I mean, they were very working class. So I think they they when they got married, that was one of those kind of people who didn't ever have borrowed money. So they sold all their possessions and a record player appeared in our house bungalow, actually, in the late in the um, early 70s with a couple of records which had a profound effect one being the carpenters i love the oh, nice. I love, yeah i love the, the the lyrics of the carpenters and then my yeah. brother my brother was 7 years older than me and he he kind of had various prog rock albums like yes and genesis and wishbone ash but he also bought this was kind of early on in the 70s or mid 70s nearly was um elton john's goodbye yellow brick road and sergeant pepper you know and they and obviously the beatles had only just broken up but to me they seemed like a band from a very different period but you thought they'd only been three years and and there was no cultural kind of significance to those two albums at all but i would sneak into his room and play them religiously and became kind of obsessed with things like yeah, some of their songs on on the second side or the fourth side of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. So having an older brother or sister is always quite good, isn't it, for sort of musical directions as well? Yes, for sure. Yep. And then, so with your with your sort of, because um, I've always just maintained the being a fan, when did you decide you wanted to sort of go up a notch and sort of a musical instrument appeared in your life? Uh, I got my first bass guitar on my uh, 14th birthday uh, and just kind of dabbled around on it a bit. Had a uh, someone in the neighborhood uh, who gave me some lessons, but he wasn't really uh, a teacher, uh, much of a teacher, I should say. I mean, he wasn't, he was just a couple of years older than me and, and knew how to play, but uh and I had a lot of, like in high school, I had a lot of friends that were very musical uh, and they had bands and all of that. And I never felt like I was quite up, up to their level. Yes. Uh, it was really in, you know, 19, uh, you know, 70, I graduated in 77. So, uh, you know, and, and towards the end of my senior year, uh, uh, started to hear about, uh, you know, bands from from England that, you know, like Ultravox. And then in uh, uh, the following year in 78, I, I uh, started working in record stores and in America, you know, and as well as in is in, um, you know, Britain, all of these great punk records were coming out. And so I uh, punk blew my mind and, and made me realize, like, I don't have to be as technically proficient as my friends in high school were i shouldn't be a bit embarrassed about my level of ability i can get out there and play it and and express myself and um and so that, that that's really when, when i kind of dove full in right yes yes i know we all i expect you were quite in, intimidated when you saw someone like uh john entwistle sort of whizzing up and down the fretboard thinking <laughs> right yeah <laughs> or chris squire from yes i think people like that but then because a lot of people who i've interviewed bass players i mean they often picked it up because i don't know they thought well this has only got four strings and i'd be able to sort of um yes have a go and, and lemmy from motorhead i think he started as a rhythm guitarist and thought this is a bit difficult but then he got the gig with hawkwind and you know then from hawkwind it was motorhead and yeah, you know, bass playing was was one of those things. And I, yeah, so you had a, but you mentioned jazz at that stage. Did did any of the jazz musicians kind of influence influence you, or were you just much more sort of into listening to jazz at that that period of your life? 
Well, definitely, uh, jazz had a he- heavy influence. Uh, you know, the 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 Miles Davis is you know once he kind of went electric, um, all of that stuff was was a huge influence. Uh, you know, just listening to, you know, Weather Report, I mean, Jocko Pastorius to an extent, but Stanley Clark was, uh, I really, really liked uh, the way he played. And, uh, you know, and also at the same time, uh, you know, there were a lot of great funk records that were coming out, you know, uh, Funkadelic, they were, uh, what What did they put out, Maggot Brain in 72, maybe? Yes. Uh, you know the the Larry Graham records, all of the uh, Sly Stone records. Uh, so you know, uh, jazz, funk, and rock were all all big influences. Um, Billy Cobham, uh, the the jazz drummer, put out an amazing record called Spectrum, and I think that came out in '72. And that that record, or maybe '73, that record absolutely blew my mind. You know. Yes, absolutely. So you mentioned Ultravox. What was your um? which is a band that uh, I just remember sort of becoming huge in the sort of early 80s. I mean, what was the first gig you went to that you were particularly sort of blown by, or the first gig you went to? Because it's always going to be exciting, the first ever moment. Uh, There were a lot of uh, concerts, arena concerts that I went to uh, when I was in high school. Uh, One that particularly stands out, though, was uh, uh, ZZ Top, their first appearance in the uh, in Minnesota was at the St. Paul uh, uh, Civic Center theater section, which was an old old theater, which actually it's been long torn down now, which was too bad. It was a great venue. It probably held maybe maybe a thousand people. Right. But uh, it was their very first time through Minnesota. And it was just three guys that came out and they just totally rocked. Um, Another concert that I saw there uh, was Nectar. Uh, Nectar was a was a mind blowing experience, you know. Uh, and then, um, you know, skip forward to 1978 after I meet Grant Hart and we started go- going to uh, the Longhorn Bar in Minneapolis to see shows and and uh, Paraubu played and that was an incredible experience. Yes, I would imagine seeing Dave Thomas in full glory in that period was. Um... Was it Modern Dance? Had that sort of come out by then? Uh, yep, that was the record that they were touring was Modern no. Dance. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what was the first kind of British punk band you saw at that stage passing through Minneapolis? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, the Buzzcocks played at the Longhorn and they had Gang of Four on that bill. And Gang of Four was absolutely incredible they they blew the buzzcocks off off the stage that night uh that was a really great show uh, you know seeing the jam seeing um uh the stranglers uh yeah just of course now i'm i'm blanking on you know yes <laughs> i was just wondering pressure here, the brain is going like uh give me a second to catch up so uh <laughs> But yes. yeah, I definitely saw a lot of great acts back then. So when did you, you know, think, right, I've got the bass. How did the sort of the early band sort of become, you know, a unit? Did Because you obviously mentioned Grant there. So did did the two of you sort of have dreams of sort of forming a, uh, a, a sort of outfit? 
yeah, we did. You know, Grant and I, uh, Grant actually brought his drum kit over to my house and we had it set up in my basement and, and we would fool around with stuff and he had a Farfisa organ that we would also set up, but it was just really just more for a laugh than anything else. Uh, and then the, uh, over the winter of, uh, 1978, uh, going into 1979, Grant and I were working in a record store together called Cheapo. And there was a, our manager, Charlie Pine, who was a, a couple years older than us. Uh, a group of us were out just at a local, you know, corner bar. And Charlie came back from getting drinks at the bar. And he says, Grant, we have to put a band together because I saw that they have bands that play here. And so um, I asked him about it and they said, why, do you have a band? And he said, yeah, I do. And they and they said, great, you're playing here March 30th and 31st. So at that point, Grant's like, well, I know a guy that goes to McAllister College, which was right by Cheapo, and he's got a Flying B guitar. That was Bob. Mm. So the next day, Grant and I pick Bob up, bring him over to my house. We jam through a bunch of Ramones songs. And it's like, okay, yeah. Yeah, Greg, Greg will be... Um, will be fine on bass. And so that's like in uh, late January, the entire month of uh, uh, February and, and early March, we start uh, rehearsing with Charlie Pine. He's playing keyboards. We put together three sets of cover songs to play at this bar. And it was, uh, you know, we played... Um, Fast Cars by the Buzzcocks. We did Non-Alignment Pack by Paraubu. We did some uh, Dave Edmonds, some Elvis Costello, uh, some uh, uh, Ramones, some uh, uh, Gene Vincent, some Eddie Cochran. I mean, it was a very eclectic mix of, of uh, songs that we put together. And when we played those first two shows, Bob Grant and I were like, hey, this is really fun playing together. We should keep playing but we didn't necessarily want to keep playing with Charlie. So after those two shows, the three of us started rehearsing um, together and writing music, uh, writing our own music. And that's really how Husker Du uh, started. But uh, kind of getting back, one of the best motivators to learn how to play is you go out and you get yourself a gig and then you don't have any choice but to learn how to play. Otherwise, yes. you know, you get up there and um, just be fumbling, fumbling about. So, yes, I think um, I was doing an interview when um, a couple of years ago with is it Jay Jay from Twisted Sister guitarist. I think they spent the entire seventies as a band, sort of touring or playing around New York, and he'd sort of, but no record label would touch them. But he sort of said, you know, you need to play about five hundred shows before you've cracked it. I'm not sure if that seems a bit of an exaggeration, but he did say playing live. And most people have said having that, that those kind of hours under your belt is kind of essential, especially when you start to perform in bigger venues and. Sometimes, especially when you get sort of hoisted onto a festival stage and you're thinking, 
thank God I've learned this by sort of muscle memory because my nerves are going to completely be shot otherwise. So, um, yes, playing live is kind of essential. And I know, was it Malcolm Gladwell said, you know, this, the, is it hundred thousand hours you've got to, to perform before you, you hit your masterpiece. I think it was kind of a bit of a creative license there, but he talked about the Beatles and the fact that they would have done a hundred thousand hours before Sergeant Pepper. So it's, it's a nice idea, isn't it? But sort of, I suppose it's like an apprenticeship, isn't it? Those early days. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, you know, the, the number that I had always heard was that it's kind of, you know, it takes about 10,000 hours to really have a grasp of your instrument. So, yes. And did you and did you and Grant, did you sort of hit it off as a really good sort of, you know, rhythm section for the band? Did you did it feel like a good chemistry between the two of you? Oh, absolutely. Yep. That kind of work. I mean, it was it was good chemistry between the three of us, right, right from the go. I mean, we were all mates, and and uh, um, and we were having the time of our life. You know, it's uh, just having a lot of fun. Yes. And did you did you easily get sort of a record label? Did you get interest in record labels quite quickly when you sort of began? There was a local uh, record label called twin tone that uh, they put out uh the first replacements records and uh we had submitted a demo tape to them there were three principals in twin tone and we sent a three song demo each one of them liked a different song none of them could decide on the same song so they decided to pass on working with us so when we recorded Statues then, uh, which was our first single, we put it out on our own label, Reflex. Right. And, uh, you know, a little while after that, we, we had met Black Flag. And, and uh, uh, so then we started corresponding with them, with SST, in hopes that they would put the record out. And uh, we had sent them Land Speed record, and they weren't necessarily interested in doing Land Speed record at the time, but uh, Joe Carducci said, you know, uh, Mike Watt from the Minutemen, they have their own label uh, called New Alliance. I think Watt might want to put it out. And Watt, when Joe asked him, Watt said, we'll put it out. I don't even have to hear the tape. Right. So that, that was how we started, you know, got Land Speed record out. And then we did another record on our... Um, uh, for Reflex, uh, our own label, and then finally SST was ready to work with us, and and that's how that started. Around the time that we were recording Zen Arcade, we were starting to get some major label interest, but most of it was, uh, I mean, from a lot of you know record labels that we weren't really interested in working with. Uh, we ultimately end up signing with warner brothers uh in at towards the end of 1986 uh mainly because we felt that that was the best fit for us they were uh they weren't going to mess with what we were going to what we were doing they weren't going to try to you know turn us into something that we weren't and um you know they would have loved to have put out flip your wig but that was the last record on sst and then of course then we turn around and give them a completely a uh, different type of album in Candy Apple Gray, yes. and uh, and then we follow that up with a double. So, uh, 
I, I think they weren't real sure exactly what to do with us at that point. But, you know, as Husker Du was breaking up, we were scheduled to go into the studio for Warners to record that um, our third album for them. But uh, that, that never happened. So No. Were you kind of amazed in those early days where you just saw the sort of songwriting between well, you know, between the members, you know, because obviously Grant probably hadn't written many songs before, and I don't know about Bob, but, I mean, suddenly the songs start to come, and there have always been such great lyrics, and there's kind of great sonic sound to, sound to them. Were you were you quite sort of, you know, mesmerised with what was coming out next? Yeah, it was fascinating. You know, in the early days, all three of us were, you know, writing a lot and collaborating a lot, uh, you know, Bob basically just would start churning out song after song after song. Uh, I mean, there are so many Bob compositions that were uh, maybe never made it out of rehearsal or or got played at a gig maybe once or twice and then dropped because he came up with something better, you know, and it got replaced in the set. Uh, you know, Grant would take a little bit longer to uh get his material together but grant's songs were usually really solid right from the get-go um so you know uh, the one thing that you don't anticipate then is the uh the songwriter battle uh between <laughs> bob and grant uh and and which it, it you know as that got more intense that's when i just kind of consciously decided to step back from that uh for one reason it became more difficult for me to get material uh worked in because um you know sometimes i i, I felt they weren't necessarily giving their best effort to what i was trying to do uh and so it's like all right fine you guys take care of the songwriting Yes. So what? Uh, so what was the process? Did you sort of jam a riff together and then bring the lyrics, or did people bring the kind of the overall idea of the song with the lyrics? I just just wondered how how this all sort of would come together. Uh, with Bob and Grant and myself, basically, yeah, it would it would be a song with. Uh, uh, usually, it would be all together uh, the the music and and the lyrics. Uh, by the time that that it would be presented to the group, sometimes it would just start off as just the music, you know, and then the uh, the lyrics would come come after that. But um, you know, a lot. Uh, for, but mostly, it was like, okay, here's a new song I have, and it's already formed, you know. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And did you? I mean, there was there was a kind of a, a one of those kind of epic jam moments, recurring dreams. Did you, was that, you know, a 14 minute sort of like psychedelic thrash song building up? Did it, was that, was that something that you would do a lot in the studio just or re, in rehearsals, those kind of moments of kind of jamming together? I, uh, recurring, recurring dreams was something that we um, had been playing live as, you know, to, to end the set, you know, kind of a big noise piece that then we could, you know, lean the uh the guitars up against the amps as we walked off and let the feedback uh wash over the crowd uh and when we went into the studio we were uh basically when we laid that down 
we were just warming up and Spot had the presence of mind to hit record. So the take on the record was uh, recorded straight to two track and it just turned out fantastic. And, uh, you know, it, 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 when we got done, we we're like, wow, Spot, I hope you recorded that. And he's like, oh, yes, I did. So, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, yep. And what's your memory of recording Eight Miles High? Because that's one of those songs which is just, it's kind of, an it's amazing, but it is also emotionally, you know, it's its phenomenal. And I just could imagine playing it would have been kind of both intense and exhausting at the same time as exhilarating. Uh, we worked up Eight Miles High to play uh, when we did a gig at Folk City in, in New York City. And uh, and we we felt that, you know, doing a bird's cover would be appropriate. And, uh, but it just turned out so good. And Bob's vocals are, yeah, I mean, they cut to the core. And so, you know, we decided let's put that out, out as a single. Uh, always a, a, a great one live. And I'm just super happy with how that came out. And the fact that a lot of people are like, holy cow, that's the greatest cover ever you know so yes i'll take well, that yeah well absolutely because i think with the nme they used to bring out sort of well a weekly paper but that would often include a sort of free seven inch single played at 33 and a third and there was a version of you doing is it ticket to ride as well so i think that yes, was ticket another, to ride which was also a great version as well did you was it was it kind of those kind of covers that you would quite you know love playing live but also jamming in the studio uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, no, we, we loved playing them live. Uh, you know, generally in the studio, we, we were, we were on a, a, a tighter budget. So Husker had a reputation for always touring the record that we were about to record as opposed to touring the record that just got released. So early on people would be confused because we'd play a show and they'd be like, I've never heard any of these songs before. They're, you didn't play hardly anything off the record I just bought. And, you know, we were on our way to California from Minneapolis to record. So we wanted to be playing those songs. So when we got into the studio, the material was tight. Uh, you know, we didn't necessarily do just a lot of jamming in the studio. Uh, um, we just didn't have time for it. So I, I think the uh, the ticket to ride on the NME's um, single was a live cut. Right. Yes, from memory yeah. it was. And um, I know when yeah. listening to people I'm like... I'm just going to show you this real quick because it's the only gold record Husker Du ever got. Oh, my God. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got mine somewhere. Which is, but... which is crazy. We got a gold record for a free single that came out uh, in Britain through a magazine. Through a paper, a weekly yeah. paper. God, the press loved you. Because I think... Because so so I know from listening to you know Fast Eddie, I remember doing an interview with him and um and also hearing Lemmy talking about the importance of a producer. They had a guy called Big Male who they had who was just really essential to the band. Was Spot somebody that was kind of really, you know, held the band together in those early years in the studio? So Spot was SST's house uh engineer. Uh, house producer uh you know he he not only recorded 
Husker Du, but he recorded records for the Minutemen and Black Flag and Saccharin Trust. Uh, he worked with the Descendants. Uh, you know, he he spot worked uh, at a studio called Total Ac- uh, our our uh, studio called Total Access in Redondo Beach, and he was able to get an overnight rate. So we would go in i think i think we started at 10 p.m and would go until 6 a.m in the morning uh because it was the cheapest rate that we could get and um when davis the guy who owns the studio uh actually right after spot passed away here back in in um uh in february uh said you know it, it's crazy here i was during the day in my studio trying to figure out how steely dan recorded asia and spot is in here at night and spot was making history <laughs> so which is true uh spot was a great producer to work with uh he, he and and i feel you know it's a lot of the SST records get a get knocked sometime because people don't like the production per se. Uh, but you know, Spot had you know his his production had an economy to it uh, that totally fit with the bands that he was working with. It totally fit with what SST was doing, and um, you know, we we worked with Spot up through New Day Rising, and then. Uh, for Flip Your Wig, that was the first record that was solely produced by Bob and Grant. Um, but all the SST records, you know, were co-produced Spot, Bob and Grant. Yes. Because on, on Motorhead's third album, they did as the famous three, the, the early years. I mean, they decided to have Fast Eddie and to, to do the production. And, you know, it was a disaster. And that was kind of the last of the albums those two, those three did. I mean, was it? strange having sort of Grant and Bob producing the the last two albums for Husker Du. Did that, you know, did that work okay or was that a little bit more problematic? Uh, Here again, that was an area that I uh, consciously decided to stay out of. Uh, (laughs) They they were adamant about uh, being the producers. Uh, Sonically, I think, the records are a little bit too high end, a little bit too trebly. Um, you know, I always felt that the uh, the bass wasn't being represented uh, uh, represented enough in the final mix. But um, so the third record with Warner Brothers, uh, Warner's wanted an outside producer, and so Bob and Grant would. And and I thought that was a great idea to have a a fresh set of ears listen to what we were recording and and have them you know produce it and mix it. Um, but of course that, that that never happened. So that didn't happen. So one, you yep. know, with, with just with the candy apple, you know, because that was where John, you know, I remember John Peel was a big fan, and I remember him playing "Sorry Somehow," which was an epic song. You, the the two ballads on it, I don't. Um, sorry, no, not sorry. Somehow, too far down and hardly getting over it. Um, yes, were you quite surprised with the the kind of intensity of those those two tracks? 
Uh, I was, yeah. You know, um, you know, definitely a lot of emotion um, on both of those those tracks. Uh, they were they were good um, good songs live too. You know, and and it kind of gave the band uh, you know an opportunity to kind of shift gears and and move the mood uh, in the live set. You know, I, I was, I'm, I was, you know, I'm very happy with how Candy Apple Gray turned out. Uh, it's themes on online in a lot of, uh, you know, threads. Uh, uh, people tend to knock Candy Apple Gray as being um, one of our lesser recordings, and but then at the same time, a lot of people are like, "Oh no, it's like one of their greatest recordings." So, yes, well, yeah. There you go. Because you toured the UK around that time. And then, excitedly, 87, my first ever Glastonbury Festival. I was that age. I got my ticket. I thought, Huskadoo, my favorite band of the 80s. I'm going to go and see them. You were playing, you know, you came to Husk, uh, You came to the Glastonbury Festival, didn't you? Friday afternoon, in fact. Can you remember much about it? Oh, yeah. No, Glastonbury was an incredible experience. So, uh, you know, playing on the main stage, uh, just all of the people that were out there in front of us, uh, you know, and I'd like to think that maybe there were at least 20,000 people paying attention to what we were doing. But um, uh, the thing that I felt was the craziest was literally two hours after we are done with our set and uh, we're walking through the little village area, they've already got bootleg cassettes of our show for sale. <laughs> I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. They're very, they're very industrious little people, aren't they? But then in my enthusiasm, I bought a ticket for your Sunday night show at the Town and Country Club. So Oh nice. So, yep. So there you go. So your your UK tour was again kind of quite a tight schedule at that stage. Can you remember much about that that particular tour and those particular nights? Yeah, so that uh, that tour, um, yeah, it, I mean, it was. We always tried to to work our tours very tight. Uh, you don't want to have a lot of time off. Um, you know, it's uh, the upcoming Ultra Bomb is is based, um, you know, the same way. If you're if you're not playing, you're not getting paid. Is the yes. bottom line for for a for a working musician, and uh, uh, but that tour was good. We we actually had uh, you know we had we had a, a a coach, uh, which was rather comfortable to, um, to tour in and, uh, had plenty of room for the gear. And we were, you know, um, uh, you know, sleeping, we're able to sleep on, on the coach if we had any overnight drives and it was good. It was, it was, a, a you know, I mean, you know, we were on Warner brothers, so press was all taken care of. It was, it was a nice tour. Yes, because I must admit, you know, 87, st I still think one of the great years of music. You had Sign of the Times, the double album. You had sort of, you know, um, Warehouse, another double album. They're quite colossal pieces of work. And um, so how long did it take in the studio to record Warehouse? Uh, you know, Warehouse, we spent quite a bit of time on that was recorded in Minneapolis. Uh, how's the audio? I just stepped outside. Yes. Still Okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. The connection's good. Yep. Good. So, um, uh, you know, so Bob and Grant uh, lived very near where the studio was. So they uh, 
spent a lot of time on that record. Uh, I live in Red Wing, Minnesota, which is a little over an hour outside of Minneapolis. So a lot of times I would, you know, we'd get done in the studio. I would drive home. They'd stay in the studio and keep working on stuff. And sometimes I'd come back the next day and I'd be like, what did you do to that mix? You know? Uh, so in a way I'm like really happy with, you know, warehouse probably was the most time that we had spent on a record. Uh, I think some of the things that, that, uh, ended up happening with the mix, I don't, didn't particularly agree with, uh, Bob had an incredible guitar solo on, um, bed of nails that, that kind of reminded me of like, uh, Neil Young, uh, that he ended up scrapping and he put a different guitar solo on it. And I'm like, Oh man, you should have kept that first one, but yeah. he was the producer. So. Yeah. And the songs are very tight, aren't they? The, the, uh, could you be the one? What can, what's your memory of that one? Because that's obviously, that was the single, but also an epic kind of record as well. Did you sort of feel when you, when you kind of played it that yes, this is this is definitely going to sort of chart well or be popular. Yeah, and you know we also did a a video for that as well that yes uh, turned out <laughs> quite quite nice. Um, yeah, you never know what what is going to you know end up being the most popular uh, cut. You know, you you can record something and put it out as a single and thinking like yeah, this is this is gonna you know, be the song of the summer or, or something like that. And then people gravitate to a different cut. Um, so I was looking on Spotify recently, the most streamed song on Spotify by Husker Du is don't want to know if you're lonely. And it's, uh, I think, could you be the one is the next most popular stream but it's only like not even quite half of what don't want to know if you're lonely is. So, yes, it's it is interesting because because I do remember buying that album and consuming it, and coming back to it, you mentioned production. It does sound very tinny, doesn't it? I have to confess, it has a, uh, a little bit. You know, I I definitely think all of those records would benefit from remastering, um, and hopefully someday they they will be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's funny because I just remember that I can't remember it being this. It's almost like the Smiths' first album, you know, which was a little bit like it felt a little bit thin that album, and and it's strange how how slightly I don't know I don't know tinny probably isn't the right word, and probably it's probably offensive, but it did it didn't seem to have you know from the the album before you know Candy Apple it seemed a little bit different. So, um, but you know my memory of it is still awesome, and I still think it was good. Just on the artwork because it's quite an amazing cover. I mean, whose idea was that that um, sort of came together? Uh, that was Grant's. That uh, you know Grant took care of all of the graphics. Uh, he had a you know he. Uh, fake name graphics that was what he always credited the graphics to but he did all of the album covers uh that whole thing was set up in the studio that we recorded it in with uh then black lights and and you know they all the fluorescent paint and and all that and uh, brought in a uh, dan corrigan a photographer that we worked very closely with and it, it you know it, it is what it turned out 
wonderful. You know, I, I don't necessarily know what Grant was striving for there, uh, but it but it looked really cool, you know. And then he did all that spin art on the back cover, and um, you know, Warehouse is actually the first album that we released that we had a photo of the band on. Yes, Sit on the back there. cover, uh, mm-hmm. and and we had always shied away from having. Uh, you know, our uh, portraits on, on record covers because we didn't want people to judge the record by how we looked. You know, we wanted the, we wanted the uh, the records to be judged for themselves for the music. Um, you know, the first time that we played in in Hamburg, Germany, uh, we that was that was one of our first tours so it was just the uh the three of us uh, uh with our our road manager and and another guy that uh, helped do our stage setup and sound and uh so we were setting up our own gear and everybody in the audience was just kind of watching us set up and once we were set up we started playing it was probably the third or fourth song before the audience realized that we were the band that they paid to come and see. Yes. And the afterwards was like, we had no idea. We thought you were the roadies and we're just warming up, you know, and, and, and then we realized it was you. And it's like, well, what did, what did you think we were going to look like? And, and they were like, well, you know, from listening to, you know, land speed record and, and metal circus and all the hardcore stuff. We expected you to be these big, tall, you know, American punks in black leather with, uh, uh, spiky mohawks and all this stuff. And, and, uh, it's like, nope, you just got three regular guys that like to rock. <laughs> yes. Not a, not a six pack amongst you really at that stage was there not, you know, like no, no t-shirts off in, you know, bare chest and I don't right. know. There was a bit of a trend, wasn't there, in, in the 80s for the bands to start stripping off and getting yeah. naked. It was unnecessary. Well, look, at, look at all those photos of Henry Rollins with, when he fronted Black Flag. I think he played most most of those shows in just a pair of gym shorts, you know? Yes, this is true. And then the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So when when sort of, as we sort of, because having done this show for quite a few years, um, yeah, most bands have a bit of a five-year narrative. You know, they get that honeymoon period of 12 months and then a single. And in this country, we had John Peel, which was a massive kind of thing. He was this beacon who collated and curated this fantastic show. So we we were introduced to so much good music. And then the first couple of, you know, there was the singles, then a few, an album, Tory and second album, things going well, third album. And then most bands do putter out. What was it? What was the atmosphere like towards 80, the end of 87 after that album, you know, Warehouse came out? Well, after we had signed with Warner Brothers, um, there were there were definitely, you know, there was a strain that was put on the band. Uh, Major labels don't like artists who manage themselves they like to deal with a manager uh that is not the artist they you know so all of the things that we had always taken care of on our own were slowly being taken away from us we you know um we had you know a a, a booking agency we had uh 
you know, a publicist, we had management, you know, all of the little details were being taken care of by other people. So in a way, all of a sudden we have more time, but, uh, you know, slowly you don't quite have the same grasp of control. Uh, and I think that that in particular was was hard on Grant. Uh, and, you know, and now at this point, we're doing bigger tours. Uh, you know, everybody's got their own room at night. Uh, you know, it's not like we're as together as a unit as we had been all along. And, uh, you know, the Bob and Grant uh, songwriting competition was was really, you know, coming to a head. Uh, it, it's, it went from being three three kids getting together and having just having a laugh and making music that we liked and hopefully other people liked it too at this point now it's definitely a business yes. and uh yeah. you know and you know the, the beatles talked about it, it uh it, uh, there's been extensive things written on that and it's true um it, it wasn't as much fun as it it as it had used to have been. And we had always said, uh, you know, well, how long are we going to do this? Who knows? Well, let's just keep doing it as long as we're having fun. And it was starting to get to a point where it wasn't necessarily fun. Yes. Did, um, did your, you know, because David, your manager sort of committed suicide. Was that, did you sort of see parallels with the Beatles at that stage? Or was it just kind of another kind of, confusing moment in the band yeah that was uh losing david was tough um it it uh, uh definitely put put a strain on the band um yeah that that i would say it was certainly a contributing factor to to our demise Yes, God, that's so. How do you know? Because, because you know, what what's the kind of moment where you realized, you know, to quote Joy Division, you know, you walk away, not probably in silence, but you know, to paraphrase that moment, when do you realize that the band really is kind of over? Well, when we played our last show at the uh, Blue Note in Columbia, and uh, you know, that was that was the night where. Grant's um, um, drug addiction kind of really showed the most. Bob canceled our uh, the next show. We drove straight back to Minneapolis, and uh, that was pretty much it. You know, it, um, I would have liked to have seen the band continue, uh, but Grant was. I think at that point, I, you know, maybe Bob had already made up his mind about uh, starting a solo career, and this just kind of skipped him forward a beat. Uh, you know, and and really, you know, Grant wanted to. You look at all of the recordings that that Grant did post Husker, and you know, Grant liked to mix it up and try different things, and. Um, I think he kind of knew that that wasn't going to necessarily work uh, with working with Bob. And 
you know, and, and Bob obviously is, is had a, had a great 40 year career now. Um, and Bob keeps churning out great records, but I wouldn't necessarily say that Bob is well, except for, uh, what was it, uh, what they called the hubcap record where he did the electronic thing. Um, I mean, oh, he, yes. he did try something different and then he kind of went back to what he does best. So, <laughs> yes, I know. Um, yeah. So then you, you sort of, you, you have a complete change of career here, don't you? This is, this is kind of an exciting time. When did, when did you decide the restaurant business was going to be your next passion? I, uh, when the band broke up, I, I went back to working in restaurants. I, I had been doing that, you know, in, in the early days of, of Husker, I liked it. Uh, and it, so in, in 1988, in, I meet a chef in, uh, the twin cities in Minneapolis and he and I become, his name's Lenny Russo. He and I become very good friends. Uh, Lenny eventually, convinces me to move from the front of the house uh, waiting tables to the back of the house and starts to mentor me as, and teach me how to cook. And, and I just naturally took to it. Uh, Lenny was, was a great mentor and uh, we're, we're still great friends to this day. Um, he, you know, he goes on to become one of the top chefs in, in Minnesota and, uh, nominated for james beard awards here in the u.s uh numerous times uh for top chef in the midwest ultimately usually uh just missing out to a chef in either chicago or kansas city uh but you know i just kind of took it from there and, and then stumbled into my first you know chef gig and uh and you know i managed to stretch that into a, a long career and i had a really great time it was very creative uh we were cooking um uh beautiful food you know farm to table made from scratch that type of thing uh, early on in my uh culinary career i actually uh, spent a summer in london and um uh, uh, worked at the greenhouse uh, for Gary Rhodes. Oh, right, Gary, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> did you, I mean, did, is it, you know, because when I was much younger, I worked in a bakery, and um, the intensity of that lifestyle is quite something, you know, you can't have an off day, you can't miss a moment, you have to be really on it, even when you're not feeling it, you know, there's, there's, you can't hide. How did you cope with that kind of level of intensity for such a long period of time? Because, you know, there is no downtime, you know, you're constantly, you know, focused, it's very hard, it, most of the feedback, if you get any, is, is one way people are picking up a little negative, rather than they giving you, you know, washing you with great praise, so what, how did you cope with that kind of, right, another day, another week, keeping the restaurant, you know, taking a holiday, I remember my boss just wouldn't take a, a holiday at that stage, because he would just, he didn't trust anybody to keep it going when he wasn't there, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, you know, I, I did throw myself into it and, and, uh, you know, you'd, you'd work, you know, 60 to 70 hours a week. Uh, you know, it was long, long hours. Uh, but, you know, I had always seen a, a, a parallel between music and, and 
uh, working in kitchens. And, you know, you do get that immediate feedback from, uh, you know, from your customers. And I always welcomed negative feedback. And, and I always encourage customers, like, if there is something wrong, you need to tell me what it is. Otherwise, I personally will not be able to, you know, fix it and learn and get better. Uh, I always feel that if you are constantly surrounded by people that just tell you how great you are, eventually you start to believe that. And then you're stuck. Uh, because at that point you believe that you can't do anything wrong and you're not going to grow. So as a musician as well, it's like, I welcome negative feedback, um, in, in life, you need that in order to grow. Yes. And how did you cope with people? Cause obviously when you started, it was kind of like people, there was the odd veg vegetarian dish. Yeah. No one had allergies in the old days. And then sort of during that period, you would have gone like, God, from from then to when you finished, you know, I I believe you finished. You know, the 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 world of what people expected and the sort of food that the people wanted to order was so different. How did you deal with those changes? Well, we would rewrite our our menu um, sometimes almost daily, but definitely, uh, you know, things would evolve through the week. We always offered a, a you know a vegetarian option. Uh, you know, and, and I take that from from being on the road and, and meeting a lot of vegetarians or, or vegans or uh, knowing like you have to have something for these people. You, and uh, in in the restaurant business, it's, uh, you know, the customer is never wrong, but they're not necessarily right either. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they're ultimately they're the ones that are are paying for the meal you want them to also have an enjoyable time and, and a good meal. So you try to be as accommodating as, as you can. Um, it, it always kind of bothered me with, uh, with chefs who act like, oh, well, people are stupid if they don't understand what I just put in front of them. It's like, well, yeah, you're, you're, you're brilliant. You're, you're a genius. But uh, this person wants their steak cooked well done. You know that's fine. Yeah. You know uh, they want to put extra salt on it. That's fine. It's their experience. I'm I'm not there to force an experience on them. Yes. Well, I was always um, I was amazed because we used to sort of fly into Vegas, have a few nights there, see a Cirque du Soleil show, then go and do a road trip. And and celebrity chefs, or just the the kind of rise of that celebrity chef in America is. Huge. I'm not sure what if it's the same in the UK. Um, in the UK, but they they they're just some, suddenly that superstar yeah. chef. So I would say like, Mark, Marco Marco Pierre White uh, was definitely one of the top first celebrity chefs, and you know he had he had his reputation of kicking people out of his restaurants in London to a point where that became the show, and that's why the place was always booked. It's like, oh well, let's go in and see if. If uh, if he's going to get pissed off at a customer for um, challenging his genius, you know, uh, but even he over the years now is has he's softened, right? Yes, we all do in the end, don't we? So when did yeah. your what, what, did is the restaurant now? Have you is that now sort of over the the your sort of? I I actually got out of the restaurant business in 2010, right? Uh, and personally. 
I think it was a good time for to get out. Uh, the only thing that I miss from uh, working, uh, running restaurants, owning a restaurant, are those relationships that you develop with your coworkers and with your customers. Uh, you know, but I still have a lot of friends, you know, and yeah. I still uh, keep in touch with with a lot of the people that I used to work with. Uh, you know, so 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 that was that was was a really great career and, and phase of my life that, that I always look back fondly on. Now I actually enjoy cooking now more <laughs> because yes. I'm just doing it for myself or for friends. Uh, so, so that brought that joy back to, uh, into my life. And, uh, yeah. And after, after I got out of the restaurant business, uh, like for the last 13 years, I've been selling wine uh, for, for a distributor here in, uh, in Minnesota, we represent a lot of really fantastic, uh, small producers, uh, throughout Europe as well as the rest of the world. Uh, but you know, um, we direct import a lot of, uh, a lot of wine, uh, from, from Europe. So yes, that's, that's, that's also has been enjoyable, but now, uh, the next phase in my life is is to get back to being a full time musician. Yes. So you. So did you have the bass slightly put away until two thousand and ten, and then did it? I'm guessing this. <laughs> did it start to come back in, and you thought, oh yes, I remember this. Oh, this. Right. Band. So did... so actually, I went fourteen years without even picking up a bass and playing. Uh, in. Uh, 2000 and I want to say it was probably 2002 um uh, I met uh a, there's a uh famous jazz uh piano trio called the Bad Plus uh I know that they play uh they played London a lot they play Ronnie Scott's uh they are, uh two of the main members are from the from Minnesota and at the time they they were recording for Sony and they had just put out a, a record and on that record they did a uh, cover of Nirvana smells like teen spirit and a customer of mine gave me a copy of their CD and said I think you might like these guys and they had a show coming up at a club in, in Minneapolis and there was an interview with them in uh, um, our local, arts paper city pages and in that interview they cited Husker Du as a big influence so I went to see them and uh, after the show I just wanted to go up and say hey I really like what you're doing thank you for you know listening you know being Husker fans or whatever and when I met Dave King the drummer he's like I've got this fantastic idea for for a um, for a band and you're the perfect bass player for it so I went out and I, I got a new bass and had to go buy an amp and and um, uh, started playing again. And it it took a couple of years for us to finally get together. But then we got together. That's how the Gang Font was created. Uh, Gang Font uh, recorded an album that came out on on uh, a independent label out of New York called Thirsty Ear that uh, puts out a lot of jazz records and. Uh, that record, you know, it, it was one of those things where it was, uh, I, I personally love it. 
but I think the um, the critics in particular didn't know what to do with it. So it was too rock for the uh, uh, and too out for the jazz guys, and for the uh, for the rock guys, it was it was too far out. You know, it was too avant garde. Uh, but Gang Fight is still together. Uh, we actually have a second album that was recorded 13 years ago that we're finally going to get released. And uh, uh, so, th- so that's exciting, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I got back into playing bass. And from Gang Fight, that led to uh, uh, me joining a trio in Minnesota called Porcupine, uh, replacing, you know, that was a band that I was had been around. I had seen them. I'd liked them. Uh, their bass player had to step away from from the business. Uh, he just didn't have time with his career. And so I was in Porcupine for a little over three years, and and uh, uh, that was exciting. That was a lot of fun. We we did some uh, great touring, uh, opening up for um, bands like the Flesh Eaters and Flipper and and Mud Honey and uh, Built to Spill, but that kind of got to a point where it just wasn't really working out. So, uh, Casey, the, the guitar player, you know, he's like, this, this isn't really a good fit anymore. I'm going to change the direction of the band. And he actually, so the drummer, Ian, he left to start his own project. Uh, and at that point, this is when Finney McConnell like messages me and says, Hey, I've got this great idea for a band. Uh, I know, Jamie Oliver, he's the greatest punk rock drummer on the planet. And simultaneously, he had he had messaged Jamie going like, hey, I got this great idea for a band. I know the greatest punk uh, rock bass player on the planet. Let's put put a band together. And that's how Ultrabomb got yes. together. And uh, we, the concept came together in, in early August. And a month later, the three of us end up in Berlin. And over the course of four days, we wrote the entire record and uh, plus tagged on a uh, cover of Sonic Reducer. And it just turned out amazing. You know, it's like Finney had these riffs. We would work into uh, an arrangement. We would get it recorded. Uh, So four songs the first day, six songs the second day. And then uh, Jamie had a gig on on the third day. That's when Finney, I showed Finney all of my lyrics and he's like, I've got the whole record figured out. And on the fourth day, he sang the whole record. We did some on the on the fly editing to kind of help with uh, with the flow of things. And we were like, holy crap, this is amazing. Uh, This record is so good. Uh, We felt like we recorded a masterpiece and we still do. So well, um, it's it is quite extraordinary, uh, um, the intensity. I mean, it's quite a punt to take just to sort of have that kind of moment. It's not like going, oh yeah, they're going to meet down the road. But to go to Berlin to commit to this project is is quite an undertaking. So you must have had a lot of confidence that this was this was kind of worth the uh, airfare. I it was. I took a leap of faith, and you know, <laughs> Finn, Finney was. You know, we had been chatting back and forth on messenger he's like oh i'm 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 in i'll be in berlin i'm doing some solo shows i've got some studio time book oh jamie just happens to be in berlin at the same time because he's drumming with with this um uh, german group and i'm like i should really 
I should go there and get together with these guys. So I bought a ticket and flew to Berlin and uh, really the, that was the first time that we had ever met face to face was, you know, when we were all together in the studio, uh, the, the engineer couldn't believe that we just wrote those songs in front of him as he was sitting there. And, uh, it, it just fell together so organically, so comfortably, uh, it, it literally felt like we had been a band for and playing together for years uh you know we we all uh, get along like like we're we're great old friends it's it's fantastic um, um in a way it, it it took me back to those early days of uh you know re- rehearsing in the basement with Husker and it was you know it was a full on group effort and um and we were just having fun you know we were having the time of our life yeah, I mean, it is, it is incredibly intense. I love the, the, there's a track on there called Fear Your Gods, which is yeah. phenomenal, and then Star, and then obviously Stickman versus Hangman, which again, um, yeah, there's an intensity which is quite extraordinary, and and sort of, it's like a band who's probably been around a bit more longer than just, you know, getting together, which is quite amazing, but, you know, there's there's your experiences, obviously Jamie and then Finney, which, um, yes, the three of you, but to create a, such a sort of, a solid sound so quickly must be quite unusual really because most people's early record is like yeah that's good i can see it's going here but to hit it quite so in so instantly must be quite surprising uh it was you know it you know musically we all just meshed you know right right from the get-go uh i am still amazed at how well finney took so i wrote all of the lyrics and all of those songs had been written, you know, over, you know, probably a two or three year period leading up to um, my arrival in Berlin. And, you know, I, as I wrote these lyrics, I mean, there was, so, you know, some type of tune or melody in my head, uh, more so for cadence. Uh, but how he was able to make them match what we had recorded just totally blew me away yes i'm not surprised actually but before that we we have one of those kind of moments that i experienced as well about um 2016 suddenly getting diagnosed with cancer you also had that moment as well a few years ago so did that mine was like completely out of the blue it's like oh we just had a test oh perhaps we'll need to give you a scan right oh you better yeah, come back so, and have a quick so that chat. was just last summer you know um after we got the record recorded got it mixed and we have you know we stumbled on a few tours we had to you know uh there, there were dates canceled uh you know uh, in canada due to a uh, visa issue there were there were dates canceled in in ireland uh in england due to uh covid issues and then we were all set to go back to england and i get the cancer diagnosis and so prostate cancer uh, jamie and finney fly into minneapolis we played one show last uh july uh for uh at the hook and ladder club for their their um roots rock and deep blues festival and uh it was fantastic it was so much fun uh 
people were losing their minds. People were crying. It was it was just great. And then literally a week after that, um, not even a week after that show, I was uh, uh, went into the Mayo Clinic and they they uh, did prostate sur- surgery, removed my prostate. Uh, fortunately, they believed that everything was contained to the prostate. My margins were clean. Uh, my subsequent testing app, you know, in the last year, everything has come back clean. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy and I'm ready to get back out on the road. So, yes, God, that's great news. Did you, um, when, when you sort of had that kind of, wow, that's, that was a bit of a, a moment. Has that sort of given you an extra focus now with the band and the tour and sort of possibly a follow-up album? Uh, yes. Um, you know, it, it certainly brings back a sense of urgency. Uh, <laughs> you know, don't take anything for granted. You know, you, you never know what, uh, what life could toss at you. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm done. I, I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get out there and, and, get this band out on the road the the you know the three of us want to see this band you know continue on and be be a success and uh we're planning on on writing uh new material while we're together on this tour uh to get it recorded uh, later this this year and uh get over and do a european and uh uk and ireland dates as well so yes absolutely this is yeah. good. So it's a great looking tour you've got coming up next week, finishing at the Las Vegas Punk and Bowling weekend. Are those, I saw the lineup. Is that something that, um, as somebody who's been in the music world for a long time, is that a, a sort of an event that's kind of an important um, date on the calendar for, for anybody? Uh yes. Uh, you know, our first show at Punk Rock Bowling is is, is a club showcase. And we're opening up for uh, the Dickies, and you know the Dickies were a huge influence on Husker Du back back in the early days. You know, there there's a quote from Bob, I believe, that said, you know, when we first got together, we wanted to play faster the, than the Ramones, and then we heard the Dickies, and now we want to play faster than the Dickies. So, uh, so so that'll be great. And uh, Philip and Stan Lee are are still in the band, and so really looking forward to that show. And then just being on the main stage at Punk Rock Bowling uh, for the final day, I think, is is going to be fantastic. You know, it's uh, Suicidal Tendencies and the Dropkick Murphys are, are, you know, the Dropkick Murphys are the headliner that that day. And uh, just to wrap up the whole festival, I think it's fantastic. Yes, it's going to be good. Did you manage to sort of um, protect your hearing during your time in Huskadoo? Uh, yes. You know, um it's easier to control your stage volume and uh, to protect your, your, your hearing. Um, I was actually for a long time after Husker broke up, I, I was kind of surprised at the fact that I did, didn't have a lot of hearing loss. Uh, for the last three and a half years, I, I have been working in um, an industrial flour mill and that's probably done more damage to my hearing than all the time I've spent playing rock and roll so um out of the mill now back to the state 
<laughs> yes, that's that low that that low level hum or not even low level that constant noise is quite something for a musician. Because talking to Jamie, he's he you know it was an extraordinary thing that he's got so many projects. He's got you know doing drumming classes or tuition or college. He's got various bands. How do you manage to? keep it all together because in the old days probably you were just in one band one project and doing it now it seems like everyone has to sort of juggle quite a lot of kind of commitments and and different projects to keep it all running I suppose well uh quitting the flower mill that was uh that's that's one thing that certainly is going to help um you know, being being uh, a parent is a full time job. Being you know uh, having a full time job to pay your bills is a full time job, and really you know devoting enough time to being a musician to create uh, a full time job. Three full time jobs. One of them's got to go, so I quit the mill. Uh, that that will help quite a bit. Yes, absolutely. I would imagine that was. Did you say it was a flour mill you were working? Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes, I could imagine that was pretty hard. And then, I mean, obviously, you know, as we we experience with life, you know, the ups and downs and people passing. How did you know? Were you? How did you process? You know, sort of the experience of you know Grant going because obviously you'd been together for so long. Was that you know? Did that was that something that you had vaguely expected or you know was? It... Uh, so you know, Grant. Um... Grant's, you know, I, I knew that Grant uh, of his cancer diagnosis, but it was one of those things where we still expected him to have uh, a few more years. Uh, then he went in for a routine uh, procedure and something happened and he actually, he bled out on the table and that's what killed him. And that was the shocker nobody expected it to happen just like that and so suddenly after you know the news of, of the cancer diagnosis uh, and and that year was the year that that we were working on the box set with numero group savage young do grant put a lot of time and effort into the into the package uh into uh you know working with numero on that so it was very unfortunate that Grant didn't actually wasn't around to see that release. And then, uh, you know, and, and then about a, a year after that, Terry Katzman, who uh, worked with Husker Du from the very beginning, uh, you know, originally, you know, he recorded a, a lot of those early shows. Uh, he had a heart attack and suddenly died, you know, so that's like two main you know, figures from, from, you know, the, the Husker, the original Husker nucleus that, that now are suddenly gone. Um, yes. You know, it, it, it's tough. Um, you know, Ultra Bomb actually will, uh, you know, we're, we're mixing in some of Grant's Husker songs into the set, um, you know, as, as a way, you know, for me to honor him and his memory and his songwriting. But I also feel like, you know, somebody has to keep, you know, keep Grant in 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 the consciousness and and remind people how such a magnificent songwriter he was. Yes, will Bridget or his son will they, will 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 they come and see the Ultra Bomb on this tour at all? Uh, yeah, I'm sure Bridget will be at the show. Uh, and actually, I'm I 
talk to Bridget on a regular basis. Uh, I have not seen Carl for, for about a year. I met Carl after, um, after Grant had passed, but, um, super great guy looks yes. so much like Grant when he was <laughs> the same age. Blows yeah. me away. So what, um, you've got your set list, which, which, um, Grant songs will you be performing? Uh, well, don't want to know if you're lonely. Uh, we, we have, uh, talked about doing dead set on destruction. Uh, it's not funny anymore. Um, for sure. Um, so don't want to know when dead set are, are, will definitely be in the set. And, um, I don't know. Yeah. We're just, you know, want to, want to mix in some, uh, some Husker stuff with the ultra bomb set and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll add a few Mahone's, um, songs in there as well. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you might hear a subs song in there. Excellent. Well, so yeah. when I I remember doing an interview with Woody Woodmancy from the Spiders from Mars, and he he was talking about when he was doing a project with Tony Visconti when they would do that holy holy kind of experience, you know, playing Bowie songs. They would just get together the day before the tour started, which I thought was wow, that was quite tight. How 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 much time do you give yourselves before you hit the stage on the first night? Uh, we will have a total of um, four days of full band practices uh, under our belt by the time we we play our first show uh, on the tour. So uh, Jamie is actually already in Minnesota. Uh, Finney comes in on Sunday, and uh, once we are all together on Sunday, we'll we'll start rehearsing the full band. And um, I've got a, a practice space here in, in Red Wing, Minnesota, that you know we can we'll be able to, to practice anytime that we want as long as we want we're, we're not restricted by you know any time constraints there so we'll have plenty of time to to tighten it up and yes. uh, everybody's ready so yes well i mean best of luck i mean yes like i said it's um it's been brilliant hearing the the new material from the band so that's good so um look thank you ever so much for your time this has been amazing and uh, if you want i can always send you a link to the interview and then you can use it on the website and um oh that'd be fantastic yeah that'll be absolutely fine but i'll do that very soon because the tour is starting very soon as well but i think um yes it was lovely talking to jamie and i'm i think i'm doing an interview with finney as well soon so there you go oh cool yeah nice but look have a lovely day and thank you ever so much for your time yeah thank you david take care thank you ever so much see you later bye-bye And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Greg Norton for giving me the time for that interview. And um, as I said, now a member of Ultra Bomb, who've got a tour and also a new album that is coming out, as you probably gathered from that interview. Um, I'll give you the link below. In the notes. But anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. And probably some others. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.